Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. The presenting sponsor of Majority 54 is the National Endowment for Financial Education. Our listeners know that there's a lot changing in our country that might make you concerned about where things are headed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you can take action to make sure that you're confident about your financial future by getting smart about money. It's, it's good branding. That's a, that's a solid title. Mm-hmm. Smart About Money is a free website brought to you by the National Endowment for Financial Education, a nonprofit dedicating to helping Americans take control of their financial lives. The difference, by the way, between liberal and conservative media is that while Fox is like, buy gold, the crooked's like, here's a free website where you can learn more about how to manage your own money. <laughs> Smart About Money's articles and courses are designed to answer your unique money questions and learn at your own pace. Each course is between 45 and 90 minutes, and you can always bookmark a page and come back later. Use their free online courses to make a financial plan and learn how to build an emergency fund, take charge of your housing expenses, plan on living the life you envision in retirement. A lot of you do a lot for the country. This is us asking you to do something for you and and for your family. I mean, they just don't teach you about this stuff. I remember I have a sister who's 13 years younger than me. Her name's Nikki. And when she was in high school, I, I tried all this subliminal advertising that was like, hey, Nikki, don't do drugs. Like all throughout dinner, Nikki, don't do drugs. And as soon as she went to college, I was like, don't take out credit card debt. Nikki, be responsible with your financial future. It's so important. And they just don't teach you uh, enough about it. And you might be thinking right now, well, nothing's really free, so what's the catch? But with Smart About Money, there's no catch, no hidden agenda, and no cost ever. Visit our special page at smartaboutmoney.org slash 54 to get started and find the tools and articles that Smart About Money recommends for our listeners. That's smartaboutmoney.org slash 54, and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. This is a special episode of Majority 54. Usually, this show focuses on a single divisive issue by talking to a single individual who's experiencing it in their everyday life. But from the beginning, I wanted to conclude this year with a different kind of conversation, one specifically about activism. Because 2017 has been a year of progressive activism. It's drawn people out of their homes in so many inspiring ways. And from the Women's March to the Me Too movement, the resistance has been especially fueled by women. So it's appropriate that this special episode is a conversation with my friend Cecile Richards, the president of Planned Parenthood. Cecile's been an activist her entire life, from protesting the Vietnam War as a seventh grader, to organizing union workers across several states in her 20s, to running one of the most important healthcare organizations in the country today. We actually sat down to talk about the subject of women's equality a couple months ago before the Me Too movement had even begun. And the conversation about women's equality really became, because I find Cecile so inspiring, one about a life of activism and what she sees for the future. 
Once we had finished the interview, I decided it would be best to hold the conversation for a bit so that I could offer it to you now to cap off 2017 and launch you inspired into 2018. I'll be back after the conversation to share some of my thoughts about the state of the progressive movement in America and what your role and my role should be in 2018. Okay, here's the seal. Uh, you protested the Vietnam War in high school, and yeah. and did you get kicked out of high school or? Uh, they tried. That? Okay, it was they tried to? This was it was actually junior high. Oh, it was in okay. seventh grade. That's okay. And no, I, that's I, I wore, way more impressive. I wore a black armband <laughs> to school. I went to this kind of like out in outside of Austin, and uh, the principal called me to the office, which is kind of funny because, I mean, of course, I'd never even met the principal. That was a big deal to meet the principal. And he, because he wanted to call my parents uh-huh. to inform on me, uh-huh. and I said, well, I was pretty sure they knew what I was doing. But anyway, <laughs> the good, the only thing that sort of, the only unfortunate part of the whole thing is he couldn't get my mother on the phone. <laughs> really, it would have been so great if he'd gotten Ann Richards on the phone, because that would have been... That would have made the day even more exciting. What do you think she would have said? Oh, she she had already kind of had her had her um, many times in the barrel with the school district, but that would have been <laughs> another. Yeah, she would have probably given him a piece of her mind, um, which is why it's extraordinary she ever ran for office. I don't know how she got away with things like that, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I started early. I was a fortunately. I mean, I think for like like for young people now, it was a time in which. It was pretty clear people were we were, people were organizing and they were protesting. So uh, okay, so you're in junior high protesting the Vietnam War. At that time, just at that age, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I had no idea. I didn't ever know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I think I just I saw what my parents did. My parents were activists, and I just thought that's what all families did. Hmm. But other families actually in Texas were bowling and doing other things, and we were you know, protesting. So that just, we were always a little out of sync. Um, what do your siblings do? So my, uh, I have three, I have like two brothers and a sister. They're all in Austin still. And they, my sister works in social services. She's just a saint. She's wonderful. And my two brothers who I adore are both lawyers and they're, you know, try to fight for, for good mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, uh, and they're all politically active in a great way. So not, I mean, I've known several families who, you know, the kid, political families, folks yeah. who hold elected office or otherwise, who the kids don't all mm-hmm. grow up to still be in sort of, for lack of a better term, the family business. What is it you think that, I mean, do you think that there's something in particular? About, I mean, your dad was a, a lawyer, a civil rights still lawyer. Still is, right? actually. Okay, yeah. Just part of this redistricting case in Texas that hmm. they're, that they're uh, in the middle of. Um, so, I mean, I... I never thought of it as a career. I just found out that when I left college, I became a actually became a labor organizer. I started working with women in the garment industry who were making minimum wage, and it was just really tough. I mean, they had a tough situation, and I found that I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I then I found that you could actually that could be your job, and that was amazing. So to thought, think that you could actually spend your life working for social justice, uh, and then of course I met a guy my husband, Kirk, who was also into the same thing. And I thought, oh my God, we can do this together and we can travel around the country. And uh, that, so I'm, it was just, um, it was never unlike, I think a lot of guys probably chart their path and some women are probably less likely. We just kind of do the next thing that needs doing. And that's kind of how my, that's kind of how my life unfolded. But I've been incredibly blessed. 
How did you end up doing the union organizing? Like how that was the next thing that needed doing, but how did that become the case? So, you know, my dad was a labor lawyer, so I knew about, and I, we'd been involved in the farm workers movement and things like that. But then when I was at, I went away to college. I mean, we'd never, no one, none of us had ever left Texas. So I went to Rhode Island, which we had never been there either. My mom just dropped me off, you know, drove the station wagon up, mm-hmm. dropped me off. But I got there and then the janitors my sophomore year went on strike and the janitors that cleaned my my dorm and i knew them How and i you, thought wow this is like you knew them because you bothered to talk to them yeah and they were like i mean eddie he was my janitor mm-hmm. and so i got involved in a student group supporting the janitors and then the librarians actually organized and i guess i just always felt a real kinship for working with uh working people and, I mean, the best years of my life, uh, many of them were spent organizing minimum wage workers. Mm-hmm. And um, so the most courageous people, mm-hmm. you know, amazing. Many of them immigrants who had struggled and done everything to get to this country and were still fighting to make a better better life for themselves and their kids. You had a much different background than them. Yeah. Uh, but you – but your capacity for empathy, like you, you – clearly you felt uh, a connection there, but – How long did it take for you, and maybe it was right away, to feel like they didn't see you as sort of outside their experience, you know? Well, they must have. I mean, I actually think about it now. Like, why did they list, like, why did this, any of this work? But I did Hmm. spend, I spent several years in New Orleans working with hotel workers, Hmm. women who, yeah, try to raise, many of them single moms, raising kids on minimum wage in a city where there was really nothing for them. Hmm. And I think it was their, they were willing to do anything to try to make things better. Even talk to somebody like me who obviously had a very different background. Um, I think it showed their um, their aspirations, their resilience. And I mean, look, they obviously taught me a lot more than I taught them, but their their spirit and their willingness to, and, and desire to try to get, get ahead, even mm-hmm. if it meant just getting a little bit of respect on the job from their employer mm-hmm. was 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 huge. Did you have to deal with the employers at all? Or? Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, I was a total thorn in their side. Yes. What was that? <laughs> what was that like to be a young woman walking in, and and you're the organizer at the right. same time? Well, did you ever see Norma Ray? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, some ways I think like, the whole thing was so crazy, but um, I, I'm only saying that in that I mean. It, there are some things about it that are somewhat antiquated, but uh, no, I mean, I was a pain for them. Things were, as far as they were concerned, as long as I could just keep paying these women minimum wage and like, who was, who was this young woman here to kind of like stir things up. And obviously I, it wasn't me. It was like either these women wanted to do something better and this was about organizing them and giving them the power to do something better for themselves. So I don't think they were never really worried about me, but they were worried about these women Mm -hmm. finally having a voice Mm -hmm. on the job. Um, Did you work but, with male organizers that you could that were treated differently? Could you see that already at that time? Or? Well, I did. Bring, so it was funny because my husband Kirk was also an organizer, and uh, I usually he was the one who went in and negotiated the contracts a lot with his with the employer and the women, but also because he's just a much more patient man. Obviously, he's been <laughs> married to me all these years, <laughs> uh, so I don't think it was actually a gendered thing as much as that was just his skill set, uh-huh. not mine. Uh-huh. I was a little more of the rabble rouser. I always feel like one of the things I've learned. Um, you know, I, d- I did 
uh, as an attorney, I did I did some work uh, on the labor side of, of labor relations stuff, and and also just have spent a lot of time around working people. And one of the things that I've learned is that we always uh, like in Washington, people talk about issues, but I have almost never met anybody who experiences issues like one at a time. Correct. Right. I mean, Correct. so like for these folks, there it's minimum wage was an issue, but also, um, you know. These are hotel workers, which were largely women. Mm-hmm. So women's equality generally was an issue for them. Right. Um, and that just seems to be – and that's also, I mean, sort of going back to Planned Parenthood, people always want to put it in a box that's a single issue. Right. But there's so many different issues that affect the population that Planned Parenthood serves. No, and it's interesting because, again, just using the New Orleans example, you know, these women who not only were um, minimum wage workers, they work in a really tough industry. It was hard physical labor. They're also almost all African-American. So they were like facing so many barriers uh, and obstacles to get ahead in that city. And I and one of the reasons why I was so drawn to coming to Planned Parenthood is I feel like it's a lot of the same women that I used to work with in the labor movement are the women who count on Planned Parenthood. So you're right. They don't only need uh, a living wage on their job, but they need affordable health care. They need to help their make sure their daughters and sons can get access to, to health care and reproductive health care, which is not easy to get if you live in Louisiana. Uh, and, you know, and it's one of the reasons I think for us now at Planned Parenthood, when I think of all of the various things coming out of the administration or coming out of Washington, our patients feel these in every sector of their lives, whether because they're immigrants or because they're LGBTQ folks who are looking for for sexual and reproductive health care, which is a lot of times hard to find in there, or at least it's not judge, non-judgmental. Um, this is voting rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you think about all the things that are being done to disenfranchise voters. Those are our patients. Mm-hmm. This is, these, that's who it's like working women are the ones who are really getting the short end of that. Um, so. It is, and I mean, people use the word intersectional, but that is absolutely how our our communities um, that we proudly work with, they all of these issues touch their lives. Mm-hmm. And I mean, gun violence, it's, mm-hmm. you know, they, people can talk about it theoretically. These are folks who actually have to deal with these issues um, uh, every day in their communities. Mm-hmm. It's in their neighborhood. Yep, it's, that's right. To them, it's just life. Yeah, it's not on TV. It's, yeah. it's right, it's, it's in the street. How do you feel like, the issue of women's equality has has changed over time. And like, how do you talk about it now versus how you talked about it then? Or maybe you don't think about it differently at all. I mean, again, I think we're at this incredibly churny moment, right, in this country, which is are we really, we're making this great leap forward into what is really true equity. And that's really where I'm, that's where I'm focused on is like, forget, I mean, legal rights are important and all this, but if you don't actually have true equity that you can, uh, you know, access and you think things have changed and then you see a woman member of Congress called out by one of her male members and, and criticized. And, and I mean, I saw that myself even actually testifying before Congress, just the total disregard that the men in Congress had, at least on one side of the aisle, for women. So it's – and actually, there was a fascinating poll I just saw, actually, mm-hmm. that was all voters – this is terrible to say. I'm just going to say it's a partisan mm-hmm. thing, and I, but it's not, no judgment. It's just – it's the facts mm-hmm. that um, – Voters in general, and women voters in particular, give women um, elected officials more. They, they think they're um, more. Uh, they achieve more. They're more trustworthy. The only group of voters who do not believe that and who rate women 
on lower on the mm-hmm. scale are Republican men voters. Hmm. So there's definitely, hmm. unfortunately, I think a partisan gender divide mm-hmm. now that we're and we're mm-hmm. definitely seeing it in Washington. And look, I think we're seeing a we're seeing an administration that absolutely believes that women, you know, we could like sort of just roll back the clock on a million things. I think if I, I would say one thing that has changed is I look at like my own kids mm-hmm. or, you know, they're in their 20s. I look at uh, kids that we organize that that are actors at Planned Parenthood. They're not going there. And so I, I just think we're in a generational shift time that um, and and one thing and this may be a I don't know, it's just a it's a weird example, Jason, but it's what I've been thinking about a lot is. I think it's the first generation of dads, so that would include you, um, that have just as many expectations for their daughters as they do for their sons. That's a great point. Like but, my father didn't. Hmm. I'm a great guy, but no, you know, that to me is where, you know, that's when things begin to change is when um, men have daughters and say, oh, I think actually she should have a chance to go to school. She should have a chance mm-hmm. to be in a law firm. She should have a chance to play a sport. Uh, and that I, I hope that's a little sign of light. It's really interesting. It's how you create allies. It's, yeah. I, I used to like, I, when I would talk about, uh, I would talk about equal pay in rural areas and, and people would at first be surprised, but I'd always talk about it as, uh, I'd say to men, I'd say, look, if your wife is making less money than a guy at her workplace and they're doing the same job, you both have less money to send your kid to college or go on vacation. But what you're talking about is, is is different and, and I think more emotional and right. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I look at, you know, I, I grew up in a time in Texas when like girls could only play half court basketball because they didn't think we could run the full court. Right. And we had to like find someone to throw it to. Anyway, Seriously. Oh my God. It's just, but now, I mean, you know, everyone has a daughter that, and they're hoping that she's the next softball star or she's the next volleyball star or she's runs track or she, this to me is like, was one of the big breakthroughs was title nine was just fine. Although I know Betsy DeVos is doing everything she can to roll that back, but that's just an example. But that, yeah, to see men on the field cheering their daughters, uh, in sports was a, I mean, that's just sort of like a big breakthrough. And I think it sort of led to a lot of other um, achievements as well. It's an important, uh, it's not a small thing, right? No. Because it's such a, it's such a pervasive part of, of American culture. Right. I mean, I've, it's, I've been watching this reruns of the show Pitch. I don't know if you remember this. It was about the first woman Major League Baseball player, and she's a pitcher. You're kidding. And oh, my God. Yeah, you should. Yeah. I've, I've only seen the first four episodes. I got, I think, canceled after the first season, but I really like it. But what's interesting is there's a storyline about her and her dad, and her dad was mm-hmm. a, a minor league ball player, and uh, and his son uh, just didn't have the the gift, and he just decided that his daughter would. It's like the whole concept. But what, what is interesting about it is um, after the first episode, you know, there's gender storylines, but – after that, I'm just a huge baseball fan. Just root and rooting for <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just enjoying the heck out of a show that's about baseball. And you kind of forget that yeah. it's um, – which I don't think is a show that would have existed before. So that's like a small cultural way yep. that no, there's a change. And we were, we're not going to change the politics in this country until we change the culture. That's mm-hmm. just – that is mm-hmm. one thing I've learned in my time at Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. is that it's – that's the key to all of this. So one of the things culturally that people talk about, because like you talked about um, the next generation, I've heard a lot of people complain where they feel like, okay, young women, they don't really seem to understand the fight. But what do you think about that? Like this idea that, you know, young women feel like, hey, but I'm not detecting all of the same things that my mom talks about. 
Are you concerned about that? Or do you think that that's just a sign of progress or, or you just don't see that at all? Well, uh, I guess I have heard that a lot, particularly in the work I do when, when older women of a certain, probably of my mother's generation would say like, why don't these young women appreciate all that we did? And I was like, well, of course they don't. There are kids. That's not, you know, they were not <laughs> made to appreciate all that we did for them. They're going to experience it in their own way. And I do see, again, you're right. This last six months or eight months has just been different than, you know, mm-hmm. anything we've seen in a long, long time. But I do see young women and young men standing up on a whole array of things that, mm-hmm maybe they just never knew they were going to have to fight for. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't think we can expect people in the th- theoretical to just pick up, you know, pick up the signs and start, you know, moving. But, and we would be a very different situation if you and I were sitting here today and all of these things that were unfolding, whether it was on women or immigrants or um, African-Americans or whatever, and this was all happening. And people were just like not doing anything. I have never seen young people Again, not wait for instructions, just get out there and go. And so I think that's a good, I think that's a good sign. Mm -hmm. And obviously when people begin to realize, yes, fundamental things that you did perhaps take for granted are now at threat. uh, That's, that's a highly motivating Mm -hmm. thing. I mean, losing this birth control benefit for women, for Mm -hmm. 55 million women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's something people can actually wrap their head around. Yeah. I mean, mean, speaking of cultural stuff, like, there's something that's pretty pervasive in our culture and the it's idea really, of taking birth control is super popular. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, even guys, I remember doing one time long ago, we were doing a focus group in, in uh, Ohio with um, a bunch of men. And I'm sure I thought, I'm sure they thought, Oh, this is probably going to be about like, you know, uh, you know, Lone Star beer or something. I don't know something, <laughs> but it's like, okay. No, we're talking about reproductive rights. Uh, and they're, to a person, they were like, they couldn't figure out why their girlfriends had to pay for birth control. They thought it should be free. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just, so this whole attack on birth control is, it's just really out of, out of sync with where American people are. And the fact that, because it is an economic issue, that's the other thing people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite statistic is that the average woman in America who wants to have kids spends five years having 2.3 kids, I think is the average, and spends an average of 30 years trying not to get pregnant. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a lot of birth control. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of birth mm-hmm. control. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out, or just need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. You know, there's one Chiefs regular season game at home left. Is it? Is it this Sunday? Yeah. It's like 12 degrees this Sunday. Well, yeah, it's cold. I, I really wanted to go to that parade of dinosaurs on the plaza where adults just dress up in their dinosaur costumes and just hang out, but it's going to be 12 degrees. <laughs> okay. So I have SeatGeek on my phone, and it is by far the easiest way that I've found to shop for tickets. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. You know, we don't have to just go to Chiefs games when it's warm. Like, we remember a long time ago, we went to one year at a good time. It was cold. I mean, I was courting you, and, you know, <laughs> ladies will do things when they're in the courtship phase, like wear three pairs of pants and stop feeling their fingers. 
Okay, just well, really more of an early season live Chiefs game kind of fan. Maybe I'll seat geek it up and. But lots of indoor activities that are available okay. on Seat Geek, and best of all, Majority Fifty Four listeners can get twenty dollars off their first Seat Geek purchase. Just download the Seat Geek app and enter promo code Majority Five Four today. That's promo code Majority Five Four for twenty dollars off your first Seat Geek purchase. Go Chiefs. <laughs> Go Chiefs. Soothe. It's an on-demand massage service that delivers a hand-selected, licensed, and experienced massage therapist to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. Soothe. (laughs) They show up with everything. They bring the massage table, the sheets, the oil, and even music so you can unwind no matter where you are. (laughs) I can't believe some people don't like this. (laughs) (laughs) I feel sorry for those people right now. (laughs) You choose the kind of massage. I'm not saying the Soothe app. I'm saying the the amazing way that we sell this product. Yeah. Oh, I've had people stop me on the street, though, and be like, can you say Soothe? Can you do it? Yeah. Yeah, I I love it. I take that as positive. Please don't ever stop saying it at home. You. You choose the kind of massage you want from Swedish to sports to deep tissue and more. And you can even opt for a couple's massage. My favorite part is that therapists can earn over three and a half times what they'd make at a spa and maintain incredible schedule flexibility. You know what that means? Mm-mm. It means you get the best therapist because the best. They want all those things. Soothe. You can book via iPhone or Android app on the web. <laughs> and you can book a massage as soon as today. Our listeners are getting a special offer that's gonna get you. $20 off your first massage when you use our code 54. Five, four. <laughs> this is the last week of Majority 54 for the year. So instead of spending an hour listening to the show next week, they could just get a soothe massage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I mean, just mm-hmm. something to do with their free time. Mm-hmm, sure. Or, you know, volunteer in your community. But also, this, <laughs> this is also good. Download Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E, in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store, and be sure to use our code 54 to get $20 off your first massage. Soothe. Spa quality massage. Anytime. Anywhere. Soothe. That was nice. One time during the campaign, I was at a uh, at a law firm in St. Louis, and I went in uh, for like just everybody was going to sit around the conference table and kind of do a meet and greet. And I went in, and uh, there was I, there were no women in the room, and just me being sort of a contrarian personality, um, somewhere in the middle of my little presentation, I started talking about the issue of, of birth control and and, <laughs> and of and, and just how ridiculous I thought it was the idea of uh, you know essentially forcing women to go to their employer to ask that it be covered. Right. right? And this guy who, I don't know if he was just sort of the uh, troublemaker guy who like, he kind of, you know, sometimes you have those folks who they want to, they want to mess with you so that they always have that story. Right. Like, Oh, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, like when you pop on TV, they're Mm -hmm. just like, Oh, let me tell you about the time I saw that guy. Um, And so he starts in on, he was a partner there and he starts in on this thing about why should I have to pay for women to do this and, Mm -hmm. and all this. And, and so I just asked him, I said, um, well, do you happen to know if the insurance benefits here at the firm cover Viagra? 
And he says, well, I, I wouldn't know. And I said, I'm sure you would have no idea. And everyone laughed and he got up and left. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it was interesting that every, like all the men in that room were just sort of like embarrassed by that. Yeah. Well, and, and the, that is kind of the funny story about why we even got birth control covered because for 10, well, for more than 10 years we've been fighting with it, but it was when finally insurance companies started covering Viagra that it was just so, the folks were so ashamed that birth control wasn't covered. Although I guess not today, but that was really, I, I mean, it is thanks to Viagra that we, I think we finally got this, this benefit. From I mean, that's to me just oh, like, well. Well, it's just, anyway, we don't have to. Yeah. Um, so like when, when speaking of stuff like that, that makes no sense, you have to constantly deal with uh, male politicians, Republican male politicians who say stuff that makes absolutely no sense about Planned Parenthood or mm -hmm. about the issues um, mm -hmm. surrounding Planned Parenthood. Like, how do you not go crazy when that happens? Like, how do, how do you kind of put that in a compartment and say, well, here's how I'm going to deal with this? Uh, well, I, or just, I mean, I don't, I don't like? know that I put it in a compartment. Yeah. I, yeah. I just, I feel like, I guess two things. One is I'm just always trying to carry with me in my head or my heart or somewhere the women who are counting on us. And so we don't really have the um, opportunity to just get mad or what. It just, you just have to keep, you just got to have to keep pushing because there are folks that are counting on well, us. Let me stop you there for a second because mm -hmm. you said some. I, and I know you mean generally just on any issue, like we don't have the luxury of getting mad. But isn't that also just sort of a different part of being in public life for women mm -hmm. as well? Like, and and in the workplace generally, like that's the other one of the things that I've um, I've always observed, like in watching uh, Diana's career and, and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Is um, men seem it, whether it's in politics or anything else, there is a license for men to get mad. It is rewarded at times. Is that something that you've confronted in your role is sort of knowing when when you can be upset and when you when it's going to hurt your cause as a woman? Absolutely. No. And I do think there are different expectations for for women on how they behave and how they uh, how they're seen in the public eye. And I, I feel like every day, even though we've made some jokes here that I'm I'm uh, I don't have the luxury of like just pouring out my own personal feelings about the hypocrisy or stupidity sometimes of what I hear, I really have to keep focusing on what is the, what is it we're trying to communicate to people about what, who we are and what we do and what women need. I mean, obviously I did that, you know, in Congress, we, I had like just sort of a barrage of folks and I keep, of course, I always think if they would just come into a Planned Parenthood Health Center, just literally, okay, just take the TVs away for a minute and just actually walk into a health center and talk to our staff, talk to, talk to the women in the waiting room, you know, about mm -hmm. why they're there that to me would change everything. And I just very rarely are they willing to do that because I don't think they actually really want to know. That's So it's happened before though. Yeah. yeah. What's that like? Uh, I mean, people change their minds. People mm -hmm. actually, when confronted, I mean, if folks' minds are open and they're willing to say, you know, maybe there's some stuff I don't know, people do, do change. Mm -hmm. And again, the other thing we're dealing with though is it is a gendered issue is that I mean, not that many men have worried about having breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Not that many men have worried, I mean, about, okay, I think I might be pregnant and I really, I'm on birth control. What in the world happened? And I'm really panicked and I'm worried. Or um, I've got to get in and get a pap smear, but I don't know if I can afford it. And I don't know if I can get the time off work. These are, 
women aren't don't walk into Planned Parenthood to make a political statement. They are literally coming to us because they need affordable health care. Mm-hmm. And just like my friends out there in Racine or, or uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, oftentimes Planned Parenthood is the only place they can get affordable health care that they need. And uh, so I just, I, of course, I wish we could just take politics out of the health care conversation altogether. But that's... Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to explain the mm-hmm. mission of Planned Parenthood, what what are the stories like? Who are the individuals who who sort of you think about and you picture who you've met along the way who you think like best encapsulate it? Like, we, like if you're sitting down yep. with one of these Republican members and and you're trying to make them understand that it is not the thing they saw on Fox News, right? Like, whose story do you tell? I mean, I remember when I went uh, when I went to speak um, to Jason Chaffetz and his committee. Talking about Dana Ferris Fisher, uh, who is a she's one of our patients in Dallas. I had just recently met her, and you know she's sort of this classic story of you know highly educated, very successful. She and her husband moved to Dallas. Um, he loses his job. She has no health insurance. Finds a lump in her breast, and literally no one in Dallas would see her without insurance. And if they could see her, the wait was so long. She, someone, someone, I don't know who said, well, did you try Planned Parenthood? She went to see Vivian uh, at her Plano Health Center. And not only did we do the early detection, but Vivian got her through her entire series of treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, she ended up having to have serious surgery and recovery. But she said, I wouldn't be alive today if it hadn't been for Planned Parenthood. And that's not an uncommon story. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember telling about, I talking about Dana in my testimony for Congress, not a single question, not a single, you would have, I could have, I could have been just reading, uh, you know, um, I don't know, or some random book. They literally not even listening. And that's, I guess, what if I think about when you say, well, what, what do you say? What I really wish, and I was sitting there thinking, what I wish is if I just had 10 Planned Parenthood patients here mm-hmm. and let them tell their own stories mm-hmm. and let it's they don't need to hear it from me, mm-hmm. hear it from the women who actually mm-hmm. um, have seen the difference that this can make mm-hmm. in their lives mm-hmm. and then gone on to do amazing things. Well, I mean, also the patient population is so large that yep. everybody knows people who go there. I guess like, I cannot go people. into a single airport or on the subway without someone stopping me and saying, Mm-hmm. Parent, I was a Planned Parenthood patient, mm-hmm. and often they want to tell me their story because, mm-hmm. you know, the other interesting thing I've learned, of, you know, so about one in five women have been to Planned Parenthood in this country, and almost every one of them can tell you exactly when it was, where it was. They either were young, they were in college, they didn't have, they didn't have, they couldn't talk to their parents, or they didn't have health insurance, um, or they were in a new town, they didn't know where to go. It's just amazing, and. That's why I do believe that we have this profound sort of relationship with our patients. I call it like the great alumni association. Mm-hmm. And these are women remember that that we were there for them. Mm-hmm. Everybody's least favorite subject, going back to election night. Um, what were you feeling that night, uh, like in particular to not your work, but in particular to uh, the way the election affects women? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you mean actually once just everything was over or just well once you knew i mean once yeah, once, we, once knew we knew what had happened i mean like, i mean and not we even knew, we don't even have to get yeah. that specific like sure what no what were you thinking about when when we knew that donald trump was going to be president i mean i was i was just I, I was literally thinking about the hundreds of health centers that we had that were going to need to get up and open the next morning and the you know planned parenthood doctors and clinicians and escorts and patients and i called two of our 
our, of our, you know, folks out in the field, women who run big Planned Parenthood uh, health centers or like many, you know, have literally see thousands of patients and just the fact that this was going to be, we were now going to be in a, a big a big battle just to pre- preserve services for women. That was really what I was thinking about, just how many people, lot their lives that were going to be dislocated. And again, we've been able to kind of like keep them at bay here much longer than we ever thought. But that's, um, I mean, we saw, and, and it wasn't just that's how I felt. We literally saw this surge of women rushing in to come to Planned Parenthood to get birth control, particularly to get, you know, methods of birth control that they were afraid they wouldn't be able to afford if they lost their benefits. And uh, so I think women everywhere, they be, they saw it very personally immediately. And, uh, you know, the other thing is I knew that after an election like that, I fear there would be a lot of people who just really literally would not get out of bed or would not be able to sort of get out of the house for days, if not weeks. And I knew that our, our health center, they didn't have that option. Mm-hmm. And what did you tell people to raise their spirits during that period post-election, but prior to an, prior to Women's March, really? Well, I do think it, it sort of all evolved in that immediately, again, I was sort of thinking about Planned Parenthood, the institution. Like, what do we make, what do we do to make sure that our doors are open, that women can still come get health care? So it was very sort of tactical. And, but then it did become this, you saw that even with the Women's March, that it just began, things began to take on a life of their own. Folks began to self-organize. And it wasn't about anything I was doing to like make people feel like they needed to do something. I remember, in fact, I was going on, um, I was on uh, one of the late shows. uh, I was with Trevor Noah and I got off and one of the women said, oh, you know, thanks for what you do. We love Planned Parenthood. And she said, we're all going to Washington. And I said, oh, that's that's great. That's that's wonderful. This was before I think people knew that everyone was going to Washington. <laughs> yeah. And I go back in the in the back room and all, they're all back there knitting their their pussy hats <laughs> <laughs> in between the sets. And so I just I mean, that's when I began to see, oh, my God, there's actually this is reaching far beyond people who think about politics. This is just folks who actually are living their lives and going, I got to be part of this, you know, um, sort of Mm -hmm. to stand up. And then, of course, we begin to see it everywhere. I I feel like you can you can absolutely feel the momentum shift. That's why I think about it as like Election Day to the Women's March as a and more so than I think of it as Election Day to inauguration. Right. Because it just felt like from there, so many people went, oh, this isn't over. Right. When we started kind of getting into this after the election and really beginning to grapple with what would this mean um, if women couldn't come to Planned Parenthood anymore, I I was looking at our map and I realized we had three health centers in Speaker Ryan's district, the, you know, in Racine, Wisconsin and Kenosha, Wisconsin. So I said, well, I really want to go out there and talk to the women that are our patients. So these are these are centers which are all all they do is preventive health services. So they do you know cancer screenings and. Uh, a lot of birth control. And I met with these women who were our patients and they were saying, where are we going to go now? There isn't another, it's not like there's another place down the street where you can go for affordable family planning. And so anyway, we had this, it was really a wonderful thing. I met this great woman, uh, Lori Hawkins, and I met her daughter. And, you know, one of the reasons she has her daughter is because of of some early detection uh, medical issue that she had and that Planned Parenthood helped her with. So she wanted me to meet her daughter. It was all wonderful. And then she said, oh, yeah, and we've actually just organized Forward Kenosha, which is now hundreds of women in Kenosha who are self-organizing. And as she said, I was, I'm just, I'm a mom. 
I was a patient, but I never was a, I never did anything. I never knew that I needed to do something. Uh, anyway, so it was kind of great to meet her. And then I, about a, about uh, three weeks later, I got an email from one of the organizations that's helping people run for office and saying, we've just, we've had an application from a woman named Lori Hawkins who <laughs> wants great. to learn how to run for office. And I thought, <laughs> okay, this is, yeah, this is real grassroots democracy and mm-hmm. action. That to me is what democracy is about, is when people, like you say, not people who are political, not people who may have ever done anything in their lifetime, say, I want to be part of changing the direction of this country. That's what excites me and gives me hope. Now, we're going to have some tough times, for sure. And there's some bad stuff coming out of this administration. But in the long haul, uh, I absolutely believe the future is on our side. I think so, too. And I think it's really surprised uh, the folks uh, in power right now. And that's a good thing. I think I think it is a good thing. I mean, I think you look at all of the the things that we care about, and I know that you care about, because it was such an honor to get to, you know, kind of be just even a little bit like in a spectator uh, around your campaign. But if you care about the environment and saving it for our kids, or you care about uh, affordable childcare, you feel about public education, healthcare, uh, women's rights, LGBT rights, these are issues that um, every family is dealing with. And I feel like we're on the right side. So let me tell you about the Great Courses Plus. You can learn from award-winning experts about anything that interests you, politics, history, science, even how to cook. I should probably do this because, incidentally, (laughs) I learned this week that uh, my great-great-great-aunt, Lizzie Black Cander, is the author of this really famous cookbook called The Settlement Cookbook. So apparently there's, like, famous cooks in my my lineage. Yes, please, please continue the family tradition. Diana would like it if she didn't (laughs) have to do all the cooking. So I'm going to try and get better. But anyway, you can get unlimited access to over 8,500 engaging video and audio lectures. I recommend checking out their course, The Modern Political tradition. It's a fascinating look into the way political theorists over the last few centuries have approached the question of how a state is best governed, examining fundamental notions like freedom and rights, which we're all going to work really hard to preserve (laughs) so that they're still there at the end of 2018 as well. Yeah. I want you to experience the Great Courses Plus too. You can sign up today. And as one of our listeners, you can enjoy all of their lectures free for an entire month. But you need to go to our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash majority54. Get started today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash majority54. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash majority54. It's free for a month, guys. Thanks to Cecile for talking with me and for everything that she does. When you look back at 2017, if all you focus on is what's happening in Washington from the perspective of who's in charge, then that's likely going to leave you pretty down. But I've had the privilege to speak at progressive events in 33 states this year, meaning I've spent time on the ground with activists in every corner of the country, and I'm here to tell you, Cecile is right on. There's something truly special happening out there. All the time, people say to me, you must be so frustrated. But the truth is, I'm not. I would obviously prefer a different president, a different majority in both houses of Congress, and several other differences in who is and is not in power throughout the country. But I'm not frustrated. I'm too busy to be frustrated. Between Let America Vote, Majority 54, and all the other ways I'm involved, I wake up nearly every day with an opportunity to fight for the cause of progress. And as the old saying goes, it's very difficult to feel down and useful at the same time. 
Plenty of progressives sit at a desk all day absorbing frustrating news alerts. But the ones who channel that into an outlet of activism after work or on the weekends or both are the least likely to be depressed about the direction of the country. As I've told you before, we're living in grabbing ore territory. If you're sitting around pondering questions like, will Trump stay in office the entire four years? Then every morning when you wake up and he's still president, you probably feel like you have to relive November 9th, 2016 all over again. And that's not helping you or the country. Getting out there and being a part of pushing back is, if nothing else, a matter of protecting your mental health. If you have no outlet to work for what you care about, then you can feel helpless. Not all the guests we've had on this show have been full-time activists like Cecile or like Bruce Franks. Some, like Tony Sedgwick, A.J. Twombly, Steve Drosky, and Salam, had to really put themselves out there and decide to use their platform. And if you're thinking of taking the next step and doing more to fight back, you're not alone out there. I've lost count of how many dozens of people I've met this year from coast to coast and border to border who, when I've asked them how long they've been involved in politics, they've said since January 20th, 2017. And that is a good thing. There's a level of activism in the country right now that's unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. The most effective movements in American history have not started in Washington and gone out. They've started everywhere else and then gone to Washington. That's what's happening right now. President Trump may have won the 2016 election, but he didn't win the argument about who America is or where we're going any more than he won the popular vote. Yes, the Republicans have the power, but we have the momentum because the truth is on our side and the wind is at our back. Our moment isn't off in the future. It's already beginning. But we all have to commit to doing all we can to use our platform if we're going to keep this going. So if you're worried about the direction of your country, but you usually keep your politics to yourself, it's time to change that. Everyone has a voice and a platform. You can talk to family, coworkers, neighbors, even the people you pick up while driving for Uber. But it's time we all start talking. This gets done one American to another, one at a time. Don't worry, you don't have to preach. Ask questions, have a conversation, but get people talking. You can do this. The First Amendment, combined with modern technology, means we all have a platform. And tweets, by the way, are not enough, because the vast majority of the time, you're only talking to people who agree with you. If you're serious about being part of the solution, you can knock on doors and make phone calls. You can march. You can call your member of Congress, and you can organize your friends to do the same. If no organization exists in your community to help you achieve these things, congratulations. It does now, and you're the founder. You can run for office yourself. Honesty is what we need most of all. It doesn't have to be some big office they talk about on TV. We need good people at every level because the best argument for progressive values is actual progress in your community that people can see and feel. If you're interested in this, by the way, and you just don't think you know where to start, I'd encourage you to check out runforsomething.org. Last week, this podcast crossed the 1 million listens milestone. I'm sure a lot of you are already doing a lot, but I know for a fact some of you use these episodes solely to help you debate the issues with your friends. I'm not saying talking to your social circle about this stuff isn't a step in the right direction, because it is. But as we wrap up 2017, I wanted to take this moment to challenge all of you to do more in 2018. Imagine what a difference we could make if we all maxed out our available time and energy from now until November of 2018. It's not too much to ask. I know it'll mean challenging yourself and, and going out and doing something that makes you a little squeamish. But I promise you'll come to love being more involved. 
Americans have been defending this country at home and abroad for generations, but none of them have ever done it from within their comfort zones. So for those of you already doing everything you possibly can, I say thank you. And if right now you're thinking you could probably give a little more of your time, drink some water, take a deep breath, and mount up, because we got work to do. I'm Jason Kander, and this is the last Majority 54 of 2017. But I'm excited for the second half of Season 1. It's going to start back up in January with a killer guest, and I want you to remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Talk to you soon. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.